Welcome to Smarter Market, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to the second season of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABAX Technologies, and I'm Michelle Dennity, your co-host and guide through the intersection of privacy, security, and digital technology this season. Today's episode of Smarter Markets is the first in a five-part mini-series that may be a maxi-series, to be fair, exploring the role of digital innovation in advancing the ESG economy. Kicking off the series is Gajen Kandia, Chief Executive Officer of Hitachi Ventura. Gajen leads Hitachi Ventura's 11,000 employees with a focus on leveraging the company's digital infrastructure, software, and services to meet the business and cultural transformational needs of his clients and help them contribute to the advancement of a more inclusive and sustainable future. Prior to joining Hitachi Ventura, Gajan spent 15 years at Cognizant, where he helped grow the company from 368 million in annual revenues to more than 16 billion. My interview with Gajan is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. All right. So I'm super excited. We sort of got stuck within our vaccines. Gajen and I met, uh, gosh, almost probably six weeks ago almost, and had a great conversation then about the seismic shifts that data and its impact has already had post and mid pandemic here. And the hits just keep on coming. So I'm super, super, super excited to welcome you to the show today. Gajen, can you start by introducing yourself and talking a little bit about your journey. And, and I do mean, in some people's cases, I mean your job journey. I mean your journey, sir. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Lovely to see you again. Um, you know, it has, I can't believe it's been six weeks since we initially connected. And I suspect we're both vaccinated now. So uh, Yes, sir. You know. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Uh, look, I, I come from Sri Lanka, born in Sri Lanka, as you would say in the U.S., a military brat growing up. Bounced around quite a bit, but, you know, grew up playing a lot of sports until uh, we were struck by, you know, civil violence in country, uh, which necessitated us to leave very abruptly to a country, uh, U.S. in this case, but a country that I had come to learn predominantly through Starsky and Hutch and Charlie's Angels. Um, <laughs> And I ended up in a place here in uh, in Boston, in Massachusetts, called Somerville, which was about as far as you could get from either one of those. You know, it was a shock in many ways, but it was it was also, uh, in its own way, foundational in in sort of you know who I became over time. You know, and uh, I went uh, straight to work. You know, we, we as a family, we had nothing, no income, nothing. Uh, you know, and and so we had to rebuild ourselves from scratch. In those days, you know, funny enough, with everything going on today, my dad w- couldn't get a job because he had an accent, if, if you can imagine, you know, and he was told that, right? hey, you know, if you could speak better American, 
you know, you could get this job. And he was an army officer trained in the UK, you know, very strong-willed man. And, you know, so it was a tough struggle at the beginning. You know, I did get some great opportunities. Uh, my mom was a Montessori teacher. She opened some doors for me, early, early opportunities that put me into technology. So I kind of fell into technology, into networking, and really built my career from there. Uh, you know, found consulting along the way as an area where I felt like my skills fit with what clients were looking for. And, and then from there on, you know, it's a sort of consulting at Cambridge Technology Partners, a company in Boston that grew very quickly from there to a startup in the internet days. And from there to Cognizant, 16 years there, and then at, uh, at Hitachi Vantero. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting uh, journey, as, as you mentioned, uh, but one that I would say that uh, I wouldn't necessarily do anything different. I'm not sure if I would end up here if I changed the base of how it all started. Yeah, that's the big question, right? It's um, if you change anything, are you going to lose the sublime or the slime? And you never really know. So you skipped a little bit that is a massive bit, sir. Um, he's not just at Hitachi Ventara. He's the dude, the honcho, the CEO. Everything that you've talked about in your journey really is so reminiscent of startup culture. Your family was a startup again and again, moving, relocating, relearning cultures, navigating, and massive data sets. There's also sort of predictive measures. It's interesting. We talked to Jim Whitehurst several weeks back, and he talked about starting in Boston Consulting Group after he went to school. And here we are back in Boston again. I mean, my, my ex-husband studied there. I don't know if that helps me at all. But along this journey, I'm hearing resilience. I'm hearing continuous learning. And I'm hearing, obviously, leadership. You don't just fall into the CEO chair. Can we talk a little bit more about that? How has data and your experience and how you build and drive and think about culture really lead to a smarter market? You know, it, it's interesting you hit on this concept of startup. I never thought about my family being a startup, right? But it's very true, right? I, I think that I have been most successful in startup-oriented roles, right? Whether that be, you know, from my upbringing or Cambridge Technology when I joined was 600 people. Uh, you know, it grew to, um, you know, 6,000 people, $600 million. Then I was a founder at a startup called Nervewire in Boston that also grew very quickly. And at Cognizant, for the majority of my career, our CEO there, Francisco uh, D'Souza, he would always say, hey, I can find 100 people that can go run a big PNL. Because I kept on asking, hey, man, when am I going to run a PNL? And he'd say, I can find somebody to do that, but I can't find somebody to do what you do, which is go you know, startup businesses and rapidly scale them, right? And I haven't quite wrapped my head around what is it, but it's, I think it's really about culture, team, approach, uh, the degrees of risk, if you will, and willingness to take risk, you know, and a big thing that I have learned and I've kind of really embraced is the willingness to listen, you know, that you don't tell a startup what to do. You learn and grow with the startup, you know, and whether you're a CEO or a, or a member of a team, the concept of listening is something that's been ingrained in me from the very early days, right? I use this example a lot, right? My dad has always said, two years, one mouth, right? This is growing up, which to shut me up, he would always say, hey, two years, one mouth, you're talking more than you're, you're listening, right? So you need to change that around. And, and I think that led to this need to listen, 
the need to listen, understand, interpret what is being said, and also think about how you say what you say, right? Because, you know, as an immigrant, you're not automatically welcome into the boardroom. You know, you walk in, you, you're first amazed that you're in that situation. You're sort of dealing with a little bit of an imposter syndrome of sorts. I wait, is it me, really? Uh, and I'm here. Uh, it's the room you always wanted to be in. But once you're in that room, now what's my voice? How do I engage? What do I say? How do I say it? Right? All of those things matter. And so listening, again, comes to play into that. And then an appreciation for other people in my role today that have a voice, that need to be given that voice, and to be open and willing and welcoming to that voice, right? And we talked the other day when we talked about it, I think that extends beyond just leadership and team into diversity and inclusion. And, you know, it, it, it has a much broader impact, I think. But those are all some of the things that I've learned along the way that I both bring to the table today, you know, in very consciously, but also believe strongly that it's part of, uh, you know, what this organization, Itachi Vantara, needs to be, but maybe arguably the industry needs to become, that we talk less and listen more. Yeah, I love that so much. And and um, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a, a gal who was up for a CEO job, and she said, I've never been a CEO. And I said, every first CEO gig is the first CEO gig. It's always a startup. Everyone feels this way. And if they don't, they're not following Gajen's dad's rule, which is new ears and one mouth, because they think that they're going to be able to somehow talk their way into better coordination. So to that point, you know, I'm a data gal, as you know, obsessed with data and strategy. When you're listening to data and when you're looking at your soft system, your leaders, the, the sources of intelligence, the sources of data, how do you think about efficiently evaluating which source to really listen to when you say you take all that information and that listening in and then you convert it into not just strategy, but momentum executed strategy. How does that work for you as a leader? And then how do you bring that into what you guys deliver in big data and AI? The the thing about data, right, is there is so much of it, right? And, you know, and it's, if anything, about to explode even further, right? I don't see an end to the data deluge, if you will, that's coming at us, right? However, I think, you know, along the way, what I've learned is sort of understanding what you're trying to achieve, the outcome you want to derive, and then clearly delineating how you interrogate the data to assess its practicality or impact to the outcome are, are sort of the two things, right? And and the instinctive skill, if you will, that I, I feel like I bring to the table, I'm by no means the expert at anything, right? I'm very clear about that. I'm not an expert at anything, but what I am good at is putting the pieces together. I can connect dots better than, you know, somebody else, let's say, for argument's sake. And you get to it by asking a ton of questions, right? And listening intently to the answer and trying to figure out how does that apply to the outcome that you're trying to derive. And I think that, you know, there is the simple side of it. When you're running a business, there's all the KPIs that you're looking to navigate and execute against. So it could be revenue margin, employee set, client set, et cetera. That's the easy stuff, right? But the things that are harder to 
really assess is, you know, even with employees that I'll use that as an example, you may have fantastic employee satisfaction scores, but you may have a, a regrettable attrition number that's off the charts, right? How do I make the connection to that? How do I use data to best understand why do I have regrettable attrition? Even though my overall attrition numbers may be okay, how do I get under the covers of regrettable attrition, right? Uh, same is true on the client side of, of that equation. And with regards to markets, I have sort of a very similar sort of, you know, it's partly, I call it analytics and partly just gut feel to identify signals, right? In terms of market signals or opportunity signals. And then the thing that we lack the most, I think, at least from what I have seen, is the willingness to take a risk with that signal and be comfortable with taking a bad risk, meaning it doesn't work out. It's okay to be wrong, right? Because if you go in wanting to be right, then by and large, the choices you make are going to be far more, you know, narrow, and it's not going to give you as much opportunity in terms of what you're trying to get at, right? So I think partly, you know, it's about shrinking the data universe down to what matters to you and trying not to sort of get all of it and make sense of it interrogating it appropriately and then applying it, you know, consistently around and the willingness to take risk around the data using signals and instinct. I think instinct is a big part that we cannot underestimate. Yeah, there's so many ways to take this. And and I'm, I'm fascinated with the signals and also sort of let's put us in time and place. So even if I'm sure this will be a classic and people will be listening in 2040, but, you know, here we are in 2021, the signals if you look narrowly enough, are we're pulling out of the pandemic, we're getting lots of vaccinations, yada, yada, and yet we're having massive tragedy going on in Southeast Asia today. We've got decisions to make about patent viability and availability on a global scale. And then we're also seeing movement on the other way. So we saw Microsoft put out an announcement today about having localized data processing as a core part of their business strategy. We're seeing the Congress coming up with bills talking about nutrition labels and granular controls for AI for consumers. I can barely get an executive to talk to me about the ingredients going in and the signals that are requisite for a good, I won't even say AI, just I. <laughs> so how do we, that was, that was like 17 questions in one. So you can take it whatever direction you want, but signal pandemic, what's next and how do you navigate that? So Michelle, the thing that I always wonder, and I've been trapped in this conversation for a while, right? When I was at Cognizant, one of the businesses that rolled up to me was AI and analytics, right? And we called it that because that's what the market wanted to hear. But underlying it, it was mostly analytics and a bunch of pilots around AI, right? And even those pilots weren't, you know, sort of, it was sentiment analysis type stuff. And, you know, it wasn't meaningful or impactful in the big picture, right? You know, my view is that we hear all of these fantastic applied data or AI solutions, but but we miss the fact that it comes from a very small universe of companies, right? And if you talk to my clients, they are still trying to make sense of data at the very sort of, you know, very hard of it, right? Sort of, we call it trying to catch up with data, 
right? They're back to the point about interrogating data, right? You know, they're struggling to say, what exactly am I interrogating and for what purpose and what outcome, right? Because, you know, as you know, IT and business aren't always sitting at the table together. Rarely, sadly. Right, rarely, right? Yeah, sadly. It's changing a bit with, you know, there's now a CIO or a CTO at the table because of digital and so on and so forth. But digital or data isn't just a thing. Right. It is actually foundational. It's integral. It's interwoven into who, what your business is going to be in the future. I don't think a majority of businesses fully accept and appreciate that. And therefore, I think the conversations are disconnected, right? They're, you know, let's go build a digital business. What, what is that? Right. Are we looking at George Jetson's like, <laughs> are we talking about a treadmill here? Yeah, yeah so exactly. Right. But, but we do come into those types of conversations, right? Okay. We need to build a digital business. So, you know, we need to build a robotic platform for wealth management, right? Everybody else is doing it. Why aren't we doing it? Well, but what is the basis of that conversation, right? You know, so, so in many ways, a majority of our customers, you know, we, we kind of frame it as saying, okay, you're trying to play catch up, right? Uh, and, and that happens to be a pretty large chunk of clients that, that are, you know, what I would say playing catch up. Then there is the, you know, people who are our clients who are getting some analytics out of it, right? And then thirdly, there's always the, you know, what we call sort of network data intelligence, right? Where when you take my rail business data and my energy data, you put it together and you say, where can I derive or maximize a low carbon footprint, high sustainability mobility solution utilizing Hitachi's, you know, rail business, energy business and technology capabilities. Now you're in a very different conversation. It doesn't have to be just Hitachi, but it could be talking to a railroad operator, a class one operator, talking to a, a power grid management company and a technology provider to say, how do we bring this together to create better sustainable mobility, you know, in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years? That is almost unfathomable when you have, like, I've had that conversation with some clients and they look at me like the CIO is like, well, that's really interesting, but we just want to talk about your storage. <laughs> Great. Right. These are large companies. Right. So we, we've gone like, you know, my daughter calls this, uh, it's the rabbit hole, right, where you start to dig and you just keep digging in. So we dug into this. Right. And, and so there's this piece of data we picked up from McKinsey that says, well, data is about to grow by 5x, right, by 2025. Clients today are only utilizing 1% of the 40% of the data that they capture, right? You know, so of the 100% of the data that's created, 40% gets captured and only 1% is getting utilized to do any form of analytics or insight. And imagine if you cut out, you know, the bigger biggies, now Google, Facebook, like take those guys out, that universe just goes down. I'm sure that number is in the, you know, in the low 0. 0.0 something percentage, right? So I feel like there, it's incumbent upon us, you included, right? To kind of educate clients about what can you do, right? Why is data so important? You know, whatever term people may use, it can be fuel, it can be, you know, the next uh, technology rush or whatever it might be. At the end of the day, we need to be able to help clients understand what is the core value that data can create. You know, how do you create a pod, a team of people 
that understand business data, analytics, insights, right? And pull it together, right? Because getting to artificial, to your point about AI and I, right? Getting to I is already a massive leap, right? And, you know, and so I struggle with the whole, hey, build me something with AI, great. But I'd rather do something around predictive maintenance and move from, you know, and help you have a better, you know, ride at Disney with better experience than having to go down this path of building something around AI. Hopefully that that makes some sense in terms of uh, how I've described it. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that I, I struggle with a good bit, which is who in the company is the best customer persona to do this wicked problem solving, strategic addressing of what are the KPIs before we get to storage what does better mean? What does sustainable mean? What does mobility mean over X amount of finite period so that you can start to actually build activities that support that outcome? It doesn't seem like it's always the CEO. They're looking strategically across. They're worried about income. They're worried about team. They're worried about finances. It may not be your legal team. They're often worried about preventing harm and risk, and that's complicated. And it may not be your data scientist because they're looking at as much data as they can get their hands on because they love it. They're data artists. So how do you find and deliver in this digital world? And I love that you're as confused as I am when people say they want to digitally transform. I'm like, into what? How do you find that customer? And how do you prepare yourself for those kinds of skills so that we can consume as if we had two ears and, and one mouth. Yeah. So thank a good nice nice connection back to the two years and one. I like that. Um, Michelle, I'm gonna take you back to something you said, right? It, which is that most of the time we are using the rear view mirror to solve forward-looking problems, right? And it works when you're driving efficiency or when you're driving, you know, some degree of either cost or, or revenue or more efficient revenue, right? So there are models, I guess, long-winded way of saying for, for solving certain types of problems. What we are presented with is completely unique, right? You know, digital is new and unique uh, in its own right data and how to use data is new. And the opportunities that are emerging are both within industries, but arguably blurring industries and, and entirely new segments, new industries that, that are popping up. So it's very difficult to look at, you know, historical data to try to define what that future is, right? And, and this is something you, you said, which really clicked with me. I strongly believe that there is no one company that can build its own, even its own future digital strategy. I think that it is a you know, we call it co-creation. I believe it's a co-creation process. It has to be done with an ecosystem of leaders who represent, you know, knowledge of industry because it's not just about your industry, right? You know, you may be in retail, but the actual opportunity may be banking in retail at the point of sale. So how are you going to get that into the conversation, right? You may be in energy and, and sustainable energy, but the actual opportunity may be in EV, right? And so how do you make those connections, right? And so I think that it's about, you know, the companies I feel will have an opportunity to succeed are the ones that are willing to put a multifaceted team together to create or co-create a set of things that they could go evaluate understand the potential and then start to 
invest in a very aggressive way to get in a, a leadership position. You know, if you think about some of the startups that have come and taken over, you know, in terms of the early days of digital, if you will, they're coming out, you know, we used to joke that it's like you go through Craigslist and you find a list area, like you find a component of Craigslist and say, I'm going to start a company to do that, right? It could be pet care. It could be food delivery. It could be, right? Because it's all in Craigslist. And so, you know, we said Craigslist was one of the best startup ideas because you just go in and pick off what you want to pick off it, right? But I think what I hear, unfortunately, consistently is about a focus on industry, my industry, i.e. clients looking at it through their industry, and business and technology still being somewhat disconnected from each other. Technology's focus, because of what we've talked about around efficiency and effectiveness, right? I call it run the business, and not enough technology engaged in changing or innovating or transforming the business. And those conversations not happening in a cohesive, co-creation way, looking for new ways that the business could move forward, right? So the data to me, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, right? Like, you know, so this uh, horoscope thing I picked up, right? It says, you know, uh, what does it say? Your horoscope can guide, but you must decide, right? So, <laughs> you know, but, but you know, it, I heard this forever ago, right? This, it's not like I live my day looking at horoscopes, but, but you know, but what is really cool from that concept for me, right, is data can give you insights, but you need to do something about it, whether that be a business opportunity or a decision-making opportunity or a new market, right? Like data, if you ask the right question, you can start to get a sense for what is going to be an area of opportunity. But you then need to have the wherewithal to say go and give people the authority to go do it and tell them it's okay to fail, right? In this world that we live in, failure is not a, I think you can't go with the failure is not an op, is, a, is not an option sort of thought process, right? Failure is acceptable as long as you're learning from that, right? So do it small, keep it chunky, sort of keep it in, in smaller chunks and iterate like crazy. We have all the technology to do it but we need the ability to lead through it, right? And I think that's where we have the most challenges. Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating because, you know, here you are very much a, a critical infrastructure type of layer in, a, in, a, in an even larger Hitachi environment. Um, you don't think about these types of companies being this innovative. How do you... I've got two questions kind of competing in my head. One is, how do you get talent that is forward-thinking and excited and coming to Hitachi Ventara thinking, whoo-hoo, this is the latest thing, um, which you do need. And at the same time, how do you help the more traditional, um, the way we were coached to be executives when I was a young professional, you wore a polyester bow and you dressed exactly like everyone else. And of course you never cussed and you were, you know, you did da, 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 and you never said anything controversial. You had to command the bland. And now what you're saying is to be iterative, to be creative, you have to lose some fear. So how do you sort of not de-risk. I hate the term de-risk. It's not a word, people. How do you de-fear your clients so that they can feel um, empowered to co-create and go forward and know what know when they're failing? And and I wouldn't even say failing in that case. I'd say when when their hypothesis didn't prove um, as expected. How do they then know that they've done it? 
they had the variables the way they thought they were and the, the outcome wasn't the same. So they try something new. So how do you get that metrics in there? And then how do we get the folks in power to allow us to work past the fear to decision? And then we can get to the, how do you then as a traditional, you know, very big brand, tell the youngins coming up through the pipelines that this is a really cool place to work. So you touched on what brought me to Hitachi, right? To me, Hitachi Ventara, the role in itself was exciting. And, you know, it, it was an opportunity to take an infrastructure company and turn it into a solutions and a digital solutions company, which is fantastic. However, it was within this brand of Hitachi, which, you know, if you come from any part outside the U.S., it's extremely well-known brand, right? Hitachi is, you know, televisions, our washing machines, you know, the appliances in general came from Hitachi. We had this a very sort of a romanticized view of the brand of Hitachi, you know, from, from Sri Lanka, for instance, right? But what I loved about the company right from the outset was that this is a mission-driven company. And I'll get to answering your question because I think it, it's interconnected. You know, the economic wealth and welfare and values are critically important. So are environmental and social values. And, and our CEO on down, it is a huge focus for the company. And so you can't get through a business conversation without talking about its impact on social, economic, and environment. It's a very, very important sort of mission that the company is on. Now, what is interesting about that orientation, right, is that every program, project, initiative, or business unit thinks about it through that lens. So sustainability is front of mind, uh, you know, safety and security is front of mind, resilience is front of mind, not just internally, but in all of our client conversations as well. And as a company, again, another thing I love about this, and I think it's important for industrial companies by and large, is that while we continue to invest in areas like, you know, mobility, energy, uh, industry, and smart life, we're also divesting from other areas to ensure that our focus is going to be in these areas. And they're areas that are interconnected, right? So mobility and energy, like we talked about, industry and energy, you know, with the smart factories and, and energy efficiency that we can drive through the different factories, uh, smart life, IT, that's kind of the pivot, if you will. And when we come into the conversations, right, and it could be anybody, but when we do come into these conversations with companies like, you know, Disney Parks or American Heart Association or, or Rainforest Connection, these conversations are led in the concept of co-creation, right? We are not coming in saying, you take the risk, I'll do the work. Now, I come from a background where we used to say that, right? Hey, you know, I'll give you a good idea, you fund it, you pay me, and I'll build it for you, right? That is not how we engage, right? So when it comes to transformation, if you will... Our conversations are about, let's start small. Let's identify areas where we can work together, build trust if we don't have a relationship already. But in that process, let's look at, you know, we have this thing called One Hitachi, but let's look at the universe of Hitachi. Let's look at the universe of your company and the partner ecosystem that we need. And can we think about how we create within that? And can we put money on the table together and, and then identify opportunities, right? And, and once you're down that path, the risk of execution isn't as high as when you're in the co-creation phase, right? So that's one way to come at it. Another way to come at it, you know, if you 
you know, one of the things that I, I feel really excited and proud of is what we're doing in the UK around sustainability of the bus system, right? So yeah, we're deploying the electric buses, 100 electric buses. Now, we are able, and interestingly, as a company, to bring our Hitachi capital capability in to, to buy and lease the buses back our technology capabilities to build the software and the services required to run and manage those buses as efficiently as possible, and then lease the bus out to the operator to be able to go and do that. And we do that with trains as well. And I think that the world in which we operate is pivoting, right? In that we don't need to just sell the bus, we now need to sell a service. We don't need to just sell the engine or the bullet train engine, we now need to sell it as a service. And I think other companies need to think the same way and approach it the same way. And to answer sort of the last part of your question, the brand of Hitachi allows me to have these conversations or allows us to have these conversations, which you can't if you come from a different brand orientation, right? Because it's large $80 billion industrial brand has a lot of the components and credentials and credibility. And I think there's a new type of company that's coming along, right? Not just Hitachi, but I suspect that there'll be others that can start to participate, facilitate, and manage these ecosystems. And underlying all of this is data, right? Back to our original, right? Underlying all of this is data, but the what, the how, right? And the application is where I think we will start to see differentiation. You're speaking to me on so many levels. I'm trying to be mindful that we have listeners and it's not just about me, but I'm going to make it all about me for a moment because you, you hit on a number of things that I think people miss and it's right there in front of our noses, which is all of this stuff that you're talking about ties back to data and not just benign data, data that's contextual, data that is driven by the assumptions of metadata, things that are owned, and I'll use giant podcast-sized air quotes for owned by the co-creators. Oh, and then and then the other word that you've like waved your red flag at me is of course trust. It's such a word that's thrown around. Trust is what I decide to bestow. <laughs> My, you know, it's not something that you can build for me. It's not something that you can demand. It's not something that you can pay for. You have to demonstrate it over time, and you keep coming back to those notions of environment, society, and governance. So ESG has become, I think, a stronger or is at least a trendier concept from the very top of board-level leadership and management. And what I'm hearing from you is sort of what I think of as agile ESG. How do you co-create and continue to sort of interrogate the building of trust across the ESG for leadership, but also, as you said, all of these things are underpinned by data, sometimes owned by different entities and sometimes owned or created by humans. So how do you think about that transaction and how do we rationalize that as we're taking these newer risks and being a little more agile ESG? Michelle, I, I completely agree with you. I think we're beyond the just to speak, if you will, right? There's actually, there's follow-up behind it. People are actually executing. There is large companies in Europe initially, now in the US with sort of the new administration, you're seeing a heavy push. And I'm hopeful that it'll continue irrespective of administration. So that's for sure. With regards to co-creation trust and data, 
The challenge we are running into that I foresee, right, is actually around trust. And it's at multiple levels and layers because the data sets that are needed are not always sitting in the same place. They're not within the control of an organization or, or an ecosystem that you're working with. You have to go outside. And willingness to trust, to share, to give and to get sort of the around the concept of co-creation, the partnership building that the underpinning trust required for, I think that's where we're going to struggle more than anywhere else because we have grown up in a world where, you know, each company is viewed through its own silo of the company and the industry and the segment in which they operate. And as a result, it's hard to change the minds of established leaders, especially to think that sharing could be lead to better outcomes and more caring, right? I mean, it's an interesting sort of world we are evolving to. And I expect to see most of our challenges there, right? Now, we may have as Hitachi the wherewithal to own more data sets than, you know, an average company, right? And so part of what we can bring to the table is, you know, we collect 10,000 data points on a bullet train engine that we can bring, you know, we have cameras. It's probably the most instrumented train in the world, right? So, you know, as we are going through, you know, the countryside of the UK, we're probably picking up more data than you care about, right? But whether you think of it through the lens of farming or, you know, maintenance of the tracks or the power structure that supports it, right? There are so many different ways that data could be utilized but we may not be able to do anything about it, right? Because our world is narrow in terms of the train. So can we then open up those data sets to work with the power authority and the agriculture authority, right? Can we find ways to utilize it? But that requires open thinking. That requires you to open up. It requires you to engage and have a different conversation. That's what's not happening. <laughs> Long-winded way of saying, you know, I think that's the opportunity, though. I, I really feel like, Michelle, when it comes to data, we are back in the AOL days of the internet. Yes, yes. And some people listening don't even know what that means. <laughs> that's true, yes. <laughs> yes, very, very true. I, I showed my daughter uh, the old, you know, the push button, the telephone, you know, the one with that... Uh, the desk phone, the desk phone, right? Yeah. She's like, what is that? Uh, yeah, right? yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, she's, she's 16. So, you know, I'm sure our audience is much older, but yes, I agree with you. So I think if we can somehow create a movement around this, right? A movement that is looking at the intersection points with data, right? And looking at, you know, the concept of how can you power good while driving a good economy, right? How can you, you know, share and execute and care all at the same time. I think we are in the very, very early days of that journey. Uh, and, and I, for one, and Hitachi for sure, is looking to try to push forward there and, and bring clients along. We have clients who have shown interest and are willing to engage, but I think it's going to be a baby steps right now. Yeah, but I'm thrilled to hear about a company as important as Hitachi and Hitachi Ventura thinking this way, because I think um, I'll, I'll posit one of my sort of pet rocks that I've been polishing is that I think the the surveillance economy, where even if you are able to sense all of this data, you can't just put a bow on it and sell it. That's very crass, and and that's more like what I call the surveillance economy, where success is 
whoever can advertise the most. And it's a really a very quickly depleted trust economy. And there's only so many pairs of shoes even <laughs> I can buy. That makes me sad to say, but there's only so many. So you can advertise to me all you want. I cannot fit another pair in this closet. So my posit over the last couple of years has been that we're going to have to move from what I call the surveillance economy into what I call the consent economy. And I don't mean pop-ups on your phone saying agree, 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 like a little lab rat. I really mean like granularly understanding if you look at the analogy for me is the human body. So at any given moment, you're being co-created. You're putting more cells into your body they're bacteria, that are food, that are medicines, whatever they are, and even the air we breathe in and out doesn't belong to us as a carbon gooey spaceship going around the world. So if you think about data in a similar fashion is, yes, your, your trains are flying through the countryside and maybe the camera acuity is strong enough to pick out how many honeybees are in the field. And it's a purposefully privacy sort of benign example. How do we get to this consent economy where we're actually looking at our data as the opportunity of saying, here's what I am, here's where I am, here's the provenance of where I've been, and now you can wrap a bow around that and share and exchange and create businesses on top of that type of data. It's sort of like if data had its own Craigslist, what would it advertise you know, things that are able to build momentum, things that are able to describe, things that are that able to predict, mm -hmm. and things that are just weird and cool. The thing I get challenged the most about, it's just sort of in the vein of the question you're asking, right, is we consent to so much and we get very little value from it, right? Which is, I think, kind of where you're going, right? Yes. The value generated from the data that is acquired or surveilled is unknown today. Uh, you know, there are some situations in which it is, right? Like, you know, I'm happy to share my address information because I want you to deliver the food to this address, right? So I have, there's a, there's a, there's reciprocity, if you will, in terms of the sharing and the value received. But I don't think we come at this question the same way at all times, right? Like I always think about Uber Eats or DoorDash, right? These guys, they get so much information from you, but they also deliver a, a something in return for that, right? But I don't get that from other places, you know, like to your point around surveillance data, you know, versus a value-based economy. But it's almost sort of where you're going with this is around consumer value-based economy, right? You know, because all the businesses are collecting the data as a business person, but also as a consumer, I get very little value in return for that data, right? And it's like taxes. You pay all this money, I was like, wait, what am I getting in return for it right now, right? So I think to give you a little bit of sense for my instinct to go back to that has been around, can I build the underpinning infrastructure, right? So can I build every project we do where there's a client who has a vision that is aligned and co-created, if you will. Uh, we call it Project Rain, but you know this whole Rainforest Connection project where we are able to help the rainforest connection, identify potential illegal deforestation in advance and respond to it in time. 
we've converted that into an acoustic model, right? AI acoustic model. If I can do that in the rainforest, I can do that for your car. I can do that for a plane. I can do that. There are so many different places it can be applied, right? So our approach around this, whether it be through AI modeling or edge intelligence capabilities, right? Or manufacturing insights is to say, I can at least build the infrastructure that takes us down a path while we figure out the appropriate application of that infrastructure towards a solution, right? Now, the solution is where the challenges come, right? Because, you know, how do I, you know, I'll give an example, uh, right? One of the biggest challenges for a train operator is to make sure that, believe me or not, that the door can close. So having a camera look at a particular spot on a door to make sure that the door is latched saves everybody so much time and creates great degrees of efficiency and gets right and, and you can proactively you can now you can use vibration detection to say hey do i know the sounds that tell me that the latch isn't locking properly does that lead me to a predictive maintenance solution right so those types of things relatively easier to do right you can get at that and, and solve it but when you start to use video intelligence surveillance to look at railway station traffic patterns, people coming in, going out. Can you use that to affect scheduling, right, of the trains, right? Can you use that to affect the flow towards the different platforms, right? That kind of stuff is starting to play out a little bit now. But again, the big unknown, right, is sort of what other things is that being used for, right? Back to the question about surveillance, right? And so we are sort of in this tightrope or, you know, balancing act between building infrastructure, finding the right implementations and ensuring that we're doing it in an ethical, moral way. Uh, and I think the ethical, moral way is what's going to have to evolve over time. And, and, and trust will need to be built around that over time as well. And, and, and my hope is that as Hitachi or Hitachi Vantara, we can sort of be a little bit of a beacon along that area to ensure that the type of projects we do the type of work that we're willing to accept and co-create a representative of that back to the Hitachi core belief around safety, security, resilience, and the environment. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets with Gajen Kandia, CEO of Hitachi Ventura. I hope you have some great ideas based on this wide-ranging and powerful conversation. My guest next Saturday morning is Greg Lavender, SVP and Chief Technology Officer of VMware, and you're going to love him. Greg leads VMware's global technology research and innovation programs with the primary goal of positively impacting and shaping the future of the organization, its ecosystem, customers, and society at large. Before joining VMware, he served as Managing Director and CTO for Cloud Architecture and Technology Engineering at Citigroup, where he led the global transformation of City IT to adopt modern mobile and cloud technologies. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. Your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABAX Technologies, I'm Michelle Dennedy. Please join us next week for a can't-miss episode of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. 
Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.